This evening's speaker uh, is Rebecca Dixon, and her precept is to refrain from intoxicants. Um, Rebecca has studied Buddhism since the early 1970s and began as a full-time began a full-time daily practice in 1992. In 1994, she trained as a volunteer with the Zen Hospice Project and has spent five years attending the terminally ill. She has worked with women in jails, prisons, and halfway houses since 1996 and has taught meditation in San Francisco's drug court program since 2000. Rebecca is a founding member of the East Bay Dharma Center, teaches beginning meditation to classes and individuals, leads a sitting group on Monday nights in Oakland, and will join the Community Dharma Leader Program this August. Are you busy? Two years ago I did that. Oh, okay. Okay. Needs a revision. Yeah. Wow. Welcome. Thank you. Blessings to you all. So how's the sound? All right, great. Sounds funny here. Um, You know, I'm really curious how many of you have... um, attended others of this series on the precepts. Oh, that's great. And how many of you just happened to be here tonight, and this is what's on the, the program? Okay. All right. Um, people have been asking me to talk about the fifth precept for years, and I've been refusing because... I didn't think I had much to say about it. I simply don't drink or, you know, take drugs. Um, It's been about 15 years now. So, um, you know, what do do I know? Except that I really, I have been working with um, addiction pretty actively for all of those 15 years. And, um, you know, teaching... uh, Meditation in the San Francisco drug court program was really pretty hilarious because uh, I walk into a room, fortunately not this big or or this crowded, with people who are probably still acting actively, you know, taking intoxicants on a regular basis. They're they're addicts, and sitting still is not something they're keen on doing, much less. Following the breath. So uh, it was a very interesting training for me. And, um, and I have learned some things that I think can, you know, do definitely mesh with the Dharma, Dharma and can inform this particular um, guideline. In, the, uh, in Buddhist ethics. Now, again, for those of you who've been to the rest of the series, I want to again rephrase this um, way of saying that the precepts are not commandments. This is not, these are not shoulds. There are five that are generally used by lay people as training devices. In, in, in the path which Buddha laid out, 
there's a, a, an area of, called sila or ethics and behavior and uh, it's fairly early in the path it's kind of a, an act this way or it's suggested that you try to act this way until you get to complete enlightenment and then it'll come naturally and the other things that we're doing as we go down this path of spiritual growth will inform our effort to kind of keep the slate clean. Because what happens is I sit down on this cushion to try to calm the mind and find that natural wisdom within. And if I've got a guilty conscience or I'm worried about this or that, or I've brought on a crisis through past behavior, it's going to be very difficult for me to settle down. And one of the great sources of peace and confidence, it's called the bliss of the bliss of integrity, the bliss of blamelessness. And, you know, there are days when I wake up and it's like, ask me any question. I have nothing that I'm ashamed of. And those are wonderful days. And I'm happy to say that they haven't come through white knuckling, through guilt or through fear. One of the nice things about Buddhist ethics is nobody's keeping score. There's nobody watching. These are just suggestions of ways to guide yourself through the day in a way that you feel kind of good about being who you are when you get to bedtime. So I'll just go through these five basic precepts for lay people. The first is, don't kill. Try to refrain from killing or and act with reverence toward all of life. Now, let me also just go back and say that in the Pali chant, there, there's a phrase, all of these begin with, for purposes of training. I vow to... So it's just, it's an aspiration for training the mind. I vow to refrain from stealing or to take what is not freely given and to cultivate generosity. I vow to refrain from sexual misconduct and to be considerate in my intimate relationships. Wow, now there's a thought. Be nice to the people you love. I vow to refrain from lying and to speak and listen skillfully. And then mine, I I vow to refrain from intoxicants which confuse the mind. So what the devil does that mean? A lot of people, you know, they get to one, you know, a couple of these and they go, well, maybe this isn't the right path for me. 
you know. The other three, but I don't know about that one or that one. And a lot of people get to this one and it's like, I don't want to totally quit drinking. What it, you know, I not take something that's going to make me feel good if I'm in pain. Well, remember, these are guidelines. And the precept on killing doesn't mean that if there's a cloud of locusts coming, you know, you don't do something that's going to maybe kill them in the process of keeping them from ruining the crops and making everyone starve. You just think about it and try to find a skillful way of handling situations that come up that deal with these issues. So traditionally, the explanation of what this precept means is don't drink or take drugs because they'll make you break the other precepts. This is sort of like one, two, three, four, and okay, give yourself a break. Don't get blotto so that you don't have control. Actually, in another parallel universe, I'm a lawyer too. And the, uh, the law, um, you, you know, if you're, a lot of crimes you have to have a particular intent. And if you're crazy, you can't have that intent. And we all know sometimes when we're drunk or we're stoned, we'll do things. I mean, what's the the classic excuse the next morning? I'm sorry, but, you know, I guess I'd had too much to drink the night before. Well, the law says, okay, maybe you didn't have the specific intent to commit this crime. But you're responsible still because you got drunk. You have that control over your behavior enough to stop drinking, stop using drugs. Well, that may be true. But it's not true for addicts. And we'll get back to that later. So... There is something inherent in alcohol and drugs that clouds the mind. That keeps us from always having the capacity to question, is this the way I want to act? Is this the kind of person I want to be? So, there, yeah, there's a flashing yellow light over every bottle of alcohol and every recreational drug. Now, not every time a person who is not an addict or an alcoholic takes an intoxicant are you going to go commit an axe murder or get goofy. You know, there are, there's a real 
um, desire to kind of back away from complete prohibition. And so uh, there are contemporary interpretations of this um, precept that are a lot softer and they, they rephrase it in terms of overconsumption. You know, that first sip may be deadly to an alcoholic, but, you know, if you're not, then maybe you can take a sip of wine. It's not a problem. The problem is the overconsumption. And this has gotten um, finessed to uh, some kind of interesting um, ways. And I just want to quote the famous way that Thich Nhat Hanh has put this precept. He says, the fifth mindfulness training is to be aware or aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption. I vow to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I vow to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. And I'm only half done. I am determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. And it's all true. There's not really any difference between these two approaches. The one of don't drink or take drugs and have a diet of food, beverage, entertainment, everything that is conducive to my health and that of the people around me. In fact, I mean, just look at all the stuff that we consume. Turn on the TV. Surf the channels. All of that is coming in. It's just an incredible amount of data input. I don't think our brains were were designed for this. I I was listening to one of my CDL littermates the other day uh, talking at James Barris's um, uh, new um, Cultivating Joy program. He was saying how the brain, uh, it's sort of like Velcro, and um, the things that stick to it, all of this input, and... uh, it's just geared towards survival. It's like, just tell me what's poison and I'll stay away from it. It's kind of what the brain wants to know. And so the, 
the negative experiences stick and the good things go through. And if we want to have joy in our minds, when a good experience goes through, we need to savor it. Bring mindfulness to it and say, oh, this is, this is good. This is happiness that I'm feeling right now. It's a good, wholesome mental state. This is how I want to live. I'm going to remember what led to this and what is sustaining it. Now, there's a fine line between that and I'm going to hold on to it until I've choked it to death or my fingers fall off. But to just recognize this is wholesome. This is happy. This is something that I want to cultivate. And when it's time to go is done, I'll wave goodbye fondly. So when you're surfing the TV, where do you stop? And all of life is like that. Where do we stop? What do we watch? What do we take in? And how do we deal with it? Well, that's a big question. And that's really kind of where I want to end up now. That's the thing that I want you to take home at the end of the day is to just be aware of what we're taking in and how we react to it and how we want to deal with it. Now, when I said earlier there are two aspects to drugs and alcohol that are different than everything else, they're the dangerous things and they're inherent in what they are. And the danger is it, it makes you goofy and you can get addicted to it. But I'll tell you a little dirty little secret about myself, and that's chocolate. I can get pretty goofy around chocolate. I've embarrassed myself a lot trying to get more chocolate. <laughs> There are some good things about it, but in excess, it's not that good. And I have a really hard time passing it up. I've been on a diet for about three weeks, and, you know, it's not unlike recovery from addiction. And then there's late-night Internet shopping. to go to my neurologist to deal with this. I, I woke up in the, one morning and there, and you know, I'd been up till like three o'clock, buying crazy things, and <laughs> and there was this article on the front page of the. This is going on the internet, isn't it? When we're done, okay. <laughs> okay, you know, so yeah, you really have to look at yourself sometimes. Um, there on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle is this article about how this drug that I take for a neurological condition I have 
sometimes makes people compulsive gamblers. And I thought, compulsive internet shopping. <laughs> and it turned out actually, it was re- it is actually vaguely related, but it was it had become an addiction. And I really needed to face the harm that it was causing me. You know, not sleeping, that's not good. And buying silly things and having to send them back. And, you know, it just, just was not the way I wanted to live. So, fortunately, you know, it didn't do harm to other people. But um, there are a lot of things that we can get addicted to. And why? Why was I doing it? What if, you know, the, the compulsive eating, the compulsive um, reading of romance novels or watching TV or, you know, for some people, sports can become addictive. Um, what are we doing when we do that sort of thing? And just to flash back to alcohol, when uh, a group was talking about the fifth precept, a dear friend of mine said, well, you know, when I get home in the evening, I just, I just want a drink to take the edge off. Mm-hmm. Probably number one use of alcohol in the world is taking that edge off. But you know, life is kind of edgy. And what do we do when we take that edge off? Now, I'm not preaching against alcohol. I'm not for prohibition. Please don't get me wrong here. If you do have an addiction problem, be happy to talk to you afterwards. But that's not specifically what I'm talking about here. The way the precept reads is intoxicants that cloud the mind or that confuse the mind. And what do we do when we take that edge off? We cloud it over. Just kind of smooth out the edges. And there's a funny thing about those edges. And I could go into karma and, you know, the past, the things we've done in the past and here it is. And, you know, but those places where life is edgy are learning opportunities. And if we don't learn, the next time the edge is going to be there and maybe a little bit sharper. Maybe a little bit deeper. And so maybe next time we're going to have to internet shop a little longer. Or whatever it is, we're, or get to that novel faster. Whatever we're doing to kind of cloud things over. Now, when things become addictive, there's 
an element to them that you probably, I mean, everybody in here, you know, we've all experienced this. It's called craving. You know, whatever this behavior is that we're using to take the edge off, there's a craving to do it. Okay, it's like, oh, I just want to sit down with that book or just want to get through dinner and turn on the TV or just eat in front of the TV or whatever. Get to, and boy, the chocolate, you know, it's like, oh, got to have it. What are the four noble truths? Life or suffering is inherent in the way we experience life. Life's an edgy thing. The cause of this suffering is craving. So what we're dealing with here is really fundamental. And when we give in to the craving, we build up the addiction and we let go of the prescription that the Dharma has for us for transcending that edginess that life just naturally has. And that prescription is laid out in the Eightfold Path, which is a much longer time than we have here tonight. But let me just say that in dealing with addiction to alcohol and drugs, I know that what people need to do is to look at the behavior to see what the consequences of it are. How does it harm me? How does it harm the people around me? What am I doing with this? And do I want to keep doing it? And in the recovery world, it's called hitting bottom. But it's well known, the bottom can be raised. There are things that can be done to make us realize before we're living in the gutter that we want to stop doing what we're doing. And uh, there's, there's a pain-based way and then there's a, a joy-based way of getting to that point where we want to stop. We can look at how bad it is, or we can look at how good it would be without it. How good would life be if we, we didn't run scared from the places that hurt? If we were able to sit with them? To let the mind calm. Let the body relax. Bring our attention to our breathing. And let that relax us and reassure us. And know that we're following a path that has worked 
for 25, almost 2,600 years. And it just sit and breathe and let the feelings pass through us. Let them come in and go. When you open the door to the feelings, be sure to open the back door so they can go through without resistance. So that's, this is mindfulness which I'm, that I'm talking about. It's the mindful receptivity to what's happening now. Because what's happening now has associated with it our reactions. A big part of life is what we feel in response to what happens. So to be able to experience it all with an open heart and open mind that's mindfulness and it's a challenge and you don't I mean the really lucky thing about this is that we build it up incrementally we build it up as we're able to you know we just we practice the sitting and we get more and more adept at focusing the mind, at being calm, at remembering those moments of panic. Breathe. You know, I've got Buddha behind me here. I've got some good advice to follow. You know, there are prescriptions, there are tricks that I can use. And just... Try to be with it. Now, I also want to talk about the psychology of of addiction and what it does to our ability to be mindful. Because of the things that we do under the influence of this craving, we're not always proud of it. And we look back at the day and, you know, I don't want to really look at that and why do I do that? And there's a, a mental habit of like lying to ourselves a little about it, not really looking at it, or if we look at it, making an excuse. Oh, God, excuses are great. Well, the reason I went off on so-and-so is because, you know, I was drunk or, you know, whatever. And in early recovery, this uh, lying process becomes a real challenge you've been doing it for years you know it's well yeah in the morning I'm never going to drink again and you know by evening you've done it again well why well it's it's not because I'm alcoholic it's you know because something happened I had something great happened I had to celebrate something bad happened you know there's excuses it's a form of self-deceit. 
And in lying to ourselves, we distort the truth. We distort our ability in the future to look at the truth. Because we have to maintain this lie and it's related to that lie. And we get this idea of who we are that's kind of goofy. I mean, most people who go into recovery think other people don't know they have a problem. And then after they quit, they find out everybody knew. You know, and some of these, the things that we are kind of closeted about, we think we're hiding and like we're the last person really to know about, to know the truth of what we're doing. And, and this is a real problem because it makes us more prone to do the same conduct again next time. And it has consequences. So does the conduct. And all of this sort of goes to a kind of an ambivalence that we have to ourselves, if not outright self-loathing. And, you know, we're really pretty wonderful, basically. When we take away all the, the self-deception and all the bad habits and we just sort of look at who we basically are. We're great. We're deserving of such love that these overconsumption habits that we have, it's just a shame that they take us away from, from who we really are. That they can cloud our vision of the, the wonderful heart inside us. So, through the Eightfold Path and through mindfulness, we've, we have been given a formula for breaking these patterns of overconsumption. And the formula is mindfulness, that is informed by wisdom and supported by compassion for ourselves and for all who suffer due to ours and their own or other people's cravings and acts while intoxicated. So, mindfulness, wisdom, compassion for ourselves and everyone who suffers as a result of overconsumption that clouds the mind. So, we start practicing this precept just by watching. Watching those times when we get edgy. And we reach for something, or we turn to something, or we turn away. We 
absent ourselves. You know, the, it was a Broadway play and a movie and a hit song, I think, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Those are the moments. Watch for those moments when you think you can just sort of jump off. And look at what you do to jump. Or when you find yourself once again doing whatever it is that you know you don't want to do. It's just this habit that you've developed. Why am I doing it? What harm does it do? What good does it do? Do I really want to keep doing it? Can I stop it now? And if not, why not? Do it with compassion. You know, one of the the things that's so important in recovery from alcoholism and addiction is learning that it's a disease. That you're not a bad person. You're not a drunk or an addict because you're just inherently flawed and beyond redemption. You have a disease. And these other addictions that we have in life... You have a problem. You're born with this brain that really just wants to keep you alive. It doesn't care if you're happy. (laughs) That's your job. (laughs) So if you're doing something nuts, don't feel bad about it. Just look at what it, what is this thing? What is it about? What's it doing to me? Is it doing anything for me? Is there a way I can cut through it? And just just hope to gradually wean yourself of it. And stay mindful. Watch what's happening. Because it's not the bad habit. It's not the habit that's bad. It's getting out of touch with life as it is and your own wonderful, natural heart. So I really hope you've got something to say or to ask. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just remembered we've been urged to get the microphone to you before you start talking. Can you, can you, is it working? Yeah. Okay. Um, it was funny that you mentioned chocolate. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed that as well as the shopping. And, um, I was watching the TV the other day and got, and some, uh, Nutritionist was saying that most average Americans consume 130 pounds of sugar a year. Mm. And so, you know, I've been very watchful of my sugar and I've been cutting down a lot. But I have noticed uh, when I don't have my coffee and my sugar and my cream in the morning... There is a little bit of a lack of a getting together. I'm used to getting that Starbucks. And, uh, but I have cut down considerably. 
I mean, quite considerably, and drinking more water, eating more fruit, and I um, don't smoke, and do drugs or alcohol, and uh, and different things like that. But uh, you know, I noticed that there are other habits, as you mentioned, like the TV. I do enjoy Seinfeld, and I do enjoy other programs like sports and uh, some of the action and, and some of the you know other things that are like history and, and science and all, and all they have uh, a lot of different uh, aspects to them which are informative and creative and, and everything and uh, at the same time I noticed that you know too much saturation of, uh, of any one thing uh, really does upset me and so therefore I've been minimalizing things that are uh, harmful and uh, kind of maximizing the things that are more beneficial. And uh, it's like you say, it's a matter of just kind of cutting through it slowly mm-hmm. to get to that point where it's at a really decent level. I do enjoy a lot of things like uh, Happy Feet, which is about penguin. <laughs> I guess that's about it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really want to stress that, um, you know, in moderation, there's nothing inherently wrong with wine at dinner, you know, or a cocktail at the party. You know, don't just because I haven't touched it doesn't mean you can't. Yes. I just want to thank you for this talk because I didn't really think it would apply very much because I'm afraid of drinking or taking stuff. I've been poor all my life and that's been great. (laughs) I have the money to worry about the whatever that is. But this is a perfect talk for a person like myself who defends herself with arguments with her siblings (laughs) which was going on today and my brother tried to get me to go over to the mirror and look at the mirror and say Mary can you honestly say and I looked right at the mirror although I looked awfully raggedy but I was talking to myself in the mirror yes and I'm just like ashamed here listening to you and I'm taking notes I've never taken so many notes it is all relevant it's the things that we do again and again and again I'm grateful for the talk. Thank you. I'm very grateful that you're here tonight, too, all of you. Thank you so much for coming. So I I have a question on um, addiction and avoidance, sort of. Um, I went through a dark period of my life, and during that period, I needed to have a book, something to read in order to get myself through the dark period mm-hmm. and it helped but then as you're talking I'm thinking that's a form of avoidance and addiction at the same time and once I cleared up out of that dark period I didn't need it anymore but I'm wondering mm-hmm. thinking back you know is it more healthy or a better way to get through it to take that on as opposed to hide from it in the book. Well, let me ask you, um, 
do you feel that you processed the feelings that you had in that dark period? Yes. And did reading the books keep you from being able to process them? No, I guess not. Not eventually. Okay. I mean, maybe it, maybe it uh, took longer as a result. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, maybe that was my coping mechanism, and that's what I needed. So. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought this up because, um, you know, I've I've also done a lot of work with uh, pain, um, people who are terminally ill, and death doesn't come usually, you know, without that. And I've never heard a Buddhist teacher recommend that somebody go through the process of dying without painkillers. You know, there are some things that are just a little too much to process. And uh, I, I can't count all the mechanisms I had for coping with the death of my partner. But, you know, I know I had them. And I processed that when I was able to. So I'm not saying that you have to go through life without a crutch when your leg is broken. You know, use it. But know what you're doing. You know, and don't don't let it kind of grow into, you know. Put it down when you're done with it. Thank you. Whatever you do, don't scratch your ear. I'll call on you. (laughs) Sure. It just occurred to me that uh, there's a few things that um, I guess involved when I look at myself in dealing with sticky things, compulsions, whatever. And it's um, since we are desirelings and we have compulsions and compulsive desires at times, we also develop habits or um, things we enjoy or things that we need. And then we have habits along that. And they all seem to feed on each other. Um, your desire, your proclivities, and then the habits you find yourself in and reinforce. So if you can break one of those things, then in your example, um, you had to get space from whatever you were dealing with, and you did it through books, which is great. I mean, that's a really good um, intuitive thing to do. Um, so if we could be easy on ourselves and just go, you know, I need a crutch already to read a book. I need to break this relationship because it's harmful. I need to take myself away from this because it's not doing me any good. Um, those are hard things to do, but if you can do it, then mm-hmm. you get to the other side a little easier. Yeah. yeah it's all a matter of um, increment, you know, small changes, small progress. And... Um, and really just watching. That's what it's about mostly. 
Just watching what we're doing and how we're reacting to things. And these precepts are just guidelines of what to watch for and maybe how we might want to do things differently. And they're wholesome. I mean, these precepts will, and wholesome, you know, it's that word I have trouble with because it's sort of like, it's been blessed. But um, by wholesome, what, what I mean is it'll make you happy. It'll bring happiness to the people around you. It'll start a ripple of happiness that'll go around the world. And for all we know throughout the universe and the one down the road. So these precepts will incline us toward a more and more happy life. And it'll have good effects on the people around us too. So just to quickly go over the the five for lay people. By the way, please feel free to jump in if you've, yeah. Um, I guess um, we'd heard about the intoxicants and such like that. There's other things that seem so much less, um, you know, costly. (laughs) Um, But things like uh, daydreaming and infatuations and things like that. You might want to just make some mention of that. Okay. There's a wheel of becoming that's this ancient symbol. And the way our minds work is we, we become aware of something and immediately Before we identify it, we like or we don't like it. Or we're so neutral toward it, we don't pay much attention. And if we like it, there's a natural inclination to want it. And then if we want it and we go get it and it pleases us, then it's very likely going to to grow into, um, you know, this desire, this habitual desire. And a couple steps down, you know, around this wheel, it goes into something called craving. So the point I'm trying to make is, between the like it, don't like it, and craving that leads to suffering, there are several steps. So the kind of thing that we're talking about with addiction and with these overconsumption type behavior patterns that cloud the mind and lead us into kind of dumb behavior Gee, that was a great sentence, and I forgot how it started. Between liking and not liking and the craving, there's a growth period. During that growth period, 
we can keep it from becoming an addiction. And this is sort of the, the, the general prescription for mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion, is to be mindful of the like and don't like response and to see how desire works and to sort of cut it off before it gets into the craving. Say, that's enough. Two pieces of chocolate plenty. <laughs> Going to walk away now. Or, okay. I find you don't even have to cut it off if you're mindful of it. Yeah. Just let it go. Let it go. But that it's easy at the, the early point. It's, it takes a little more as it's getting into the craving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, try at that middle point. At the middle point, like you said, to have two pieces of chocolate and then cut off. It's sort of like the zest of life, I see. You know, it's just like having a little bit of everything that's kind of joyful. Laughter, you know, sweet, um, scent of a flower. Um, Those kind of things are part of what makes life enjoyable. Yeah. And so to cut them off completely would be sort of like not enjoying life, like our quiet moment here. Buddha defined the eightfold path, or he called the eightfold path the middle way. It's between asceticism, which is cutting off everything, and indulgence. It's basically a way of moderation. Now, every one of us in this room, I would guess, has some addictions now, and some proclivities, and some a lot of things that we get pleasure out of that we're managing quite nicely. So the trick to living a happy life where we don't go around causing suffering to others is to just be aware of this stuff. That's all. Bringing mindfulness to it, like you said, to see what we're doing, see the consequences, and and also bear in mind that vision of how wonderful we really are. And to aspire to being that right now, right this moment. Do you get it? <laughs> Does that make sense? To hold our own freedom, our own joy as the aspiration and sort of the guideline as we go through life. Now, there are other guidelines. It's, we're in the last few minutes. So do we have a burning desire of a question or a comment? Because I want to kind of... What you have to say is more important, really. But, okay, I'll wrap it up then. With just a refrain of these for reprisal not to kill not to take what isn't given freely 
not to use sexual energy in a way that's harmful. Not to lie or harm people through speech. And to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. And if you want, for a special occasion, some people add to these three more precepts. And sometimes on long retreats, this is offered. And they are to refrain from eating at the forbidden time, and that's afternoon. So you might want to try a half-day fast sometime. What's it like? What is hunger? Since I've been on this diet, it's like, hmm. Oh, that's what hunger is (laughs) like. I don't have to act crazy behind it because, you know, I'm watching what I eat. I'm eating good nutrition. I'm not having blood sugar crashes. It's just hunger. It's an option. You don't have to do this. (laughs) And then the the, uh, uh, next one is to refrain from... Dancing, singing, music, going to see entertainments, wearing garlands, using perfumes, beautifying the body with cosmetics. Whooping it up in general. And then I undertake the precept to refrain from lying on high or luxurious sleeping places or overindulging in comfort, physical comfort. So these... Go on a camping trip. You know, they're easy to, you know, lie in your sleeping bag, skip dinner. Just an option as another, as further guidelines to see what am I doing? How does it affect me? How does it affect others? What does this feel like? So I... uh, would like to offer the goodness that comes from all of you coming here tonight and practicing, sitting mindfully, trying not to fall asleep, and listening to me and participating in the discussion. May all of the goodness that comes from this go to the well-being of you and all beings near and far, now and in the future. May we all be happy, at peace, free from suffering, and may we we all know and accept ourselves just as we are. Thank you very much for coming this evening.